Today on Speaking Out of Place, we talk with artists and activists Isabel Fremont and Jay Jordan about their book, We Are Nature Defending Itself, which is not only the story of a 40-year struggle to preserve 4,000 acres of wetlands from being destroyed to make way for an airport, but also a profound and beautiful meditation on what it means to live together and struggle together outside the logic of capitalist extraction and violence. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the Creative Process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for his content. Love your book so much. It's hard to know where to begin, where to end in praising it. First of all, it's beautifully written. And the things that I find most useful for my classroom is the honesty and the modesty, right? It's not your usual occupying the position of the master narrator but you show how you morph during the whole process. And especially for students at places like Stanford who are queasy about being in the middle of the belly of the beast and don't know how to extricate themselves from it without feeling all this guilt and privilege. You are models for people who work through those kinds of negotiations in a really powerful way. I think it'd be useful if you just, and I'm sure you've done this a million times, a brief sketch of the story that you tell in the book whatever you think the main points are, maybe just spend a few minutes setting the stage for our discussion. And we can always circle back and flesh out things as you wish. Well, first of all, thank you very much. And so it's a very positive note to start that evening. So where to start? We always like to write from ourselves. David Graeber, a friend and comrade, always taught us to be kind to your reader the words he used to use. So those things are important for us. And it's much more interesting to tell theory through stories and experience. And so this is our experience of basically leaving the city, leaving London, and in a search for in our work to bring together art, politics, and everyday life, which are the kind of avant-garde, kind of holy trinity of the European avant-garde. And all our work as art activists in London and different countries felt very much like an event. We would come back from that work, having done actions at a climate camp or G8 summit, and we'd kind of be reproducing capitalism every time we came home to our jobs and to our flat. And we wanted to anchor ourselves in somewhere where there was no longer politics as event, but politics as life. And we ended up various ways, on the ZAD of Notre-Dame-de-Land, the ZAD, the Zone to Defend, which is a territory of 4,000 acres where for 40 years people had been fighting against an airport project, an international airport project for the city of Nantes, and putting their bodies in the way and their life in the way. And what attracted us to this place was the mixture of the yes and the no, the way that here there was both a way of saying no to the airport and its world and yes to other forms of life, yes to ways of having a shared life. And so in 2016, we ended up here in a squatted farmhouse and we joined the struggle. And I could do the spoiler now or we can do the spoiler later. What do you well, think, David? Spoiler well, now? I don't know. I'm sort of a narrative guy. I like to have a little bit of suspense. You like let's... to draw things out. I'm a lawyer, so I like to put the conclusion at the beginning. Okay, let, let's do the spoiler now, and then we'll show the intricate path to it. Well, we're very lucky to have gone through and taken part in this particular struggle that won, because 
that extraordinary struggle that stretched over almost 50 years, actually, got to the cancellation of the International Airport Project. And therefore, the preservation of these 4,000 acres of uh, wetlands and farmlands and, the, and all the forms of life that had developed here over, of course, many hundreds of years and with the intensity of the last 10 years and therefore since 2018, the date um, on which the, the airport was cancelled, what has been a really interesting new phase is to build the commons and maintaining and developing and morphing what have been very, very intense relationships between amongst humans and with the more than humans, because that's one of the things that we discovered by coming here is that literally when you truly inhabit a territory, that it ends up inhabiting you. And that we, I think that we got closer to understanding what indigenous struggles have been embodying and talking about for so long, which is that when you defend land, you're defending so much more than land. You're defending a certain type of relationship, a certain approach to life. You, there is a depth and an intensity and a texture that you need to experience to be able to understand it without wanting to be elitist about it. But we certainly discovered that that quality of relationship that led to the quality of the struggle. And what we try to do is to morph this into a certain quality of staying here with a different type of, with a different temporality, because it's a very, very different thing to fight against a massive infrastructure through building new types of forms of life and to actually stay, build the commons and project over several generations. It's a very interesting new way of apprehending the struggle. There were attempts to evict this place to build the airport over the years. It began as a struggle around farmland and food producing land and what they called nourishing land. And that was in the 70s. And then it was the lands were squatted because people who were living here had seen the territory being emptied and desertified because the expropriation laws mean that they force people to sell the land, they force people to sell the houses. And they wrote a letter which basically had a line in it, which became a bit of a leitmotif of the movement here, which was to defend a territory, you need to inhabit it because they saw it being emptied. And so they wrote this open letter inviting people to come and squat the empty houses, got the forests, and so on. And that was really the beginning of the ZAD, which means Zone to Defend, which was a, a hacking of the acronym, the urbanism, the, the legal acronym for Zona Aménagement Différé, which means the zone where there will be further development. And so for 40 years, this zone where there'd be further development was left. No one dealt with the roads, no one dealt with the infrastructure, and actually what was magical is that it was a form of landscape that's called a bockage, which is 220 kilometers of hedgerows, tiny little fields, which in most of France, that landscape has been destroyed for industrial agriculture. But because they were going to destroy it anyway, the airport, they left it here. So when we won, we also won because of this. We won this landscape, which is incredibly important in terms of the hydrology of a region. Uh, hedgerows are very, very, very important for biodiversity and for, for keeping water and so on. 
So once the people started squatting, then you had this beginning of this kind of anti-capitalist idea, an anti-capitalist form of life happening with bakeries and gardens and sawmills and print shops and all different kind of structures being set up in the way of the airport, while at the same time having a struggle to try and stop the airport, big demonstrations with 40,000 people, 20,000 people, huge, huge. It became a mass popular movement in France. I think there are so many beautiful threads in what you've said that we can pick up on and that hopefully we will pick up on through this conversation. But perhaps one place to start is with your observation about how the ZAD was not only about transforming relationships between humans, but between humans and other than humans. And clear in your descriptions of the very detailed attention paid to the movements of swallows, the relationship with the forest, is a de-anthropocentrization of precisely what it means to inhabit the territory, where territory is not simply property, but rather land as a web of relations, as Indigenous nations speak of. So often, in even supposedly non-human-centric political theorizing, relations with animals translates into speaking for non-human animals, whether it be in, for example, Will Kimlicka's conception of zoopolis, where it's humans who represent the non-human interests in a human-centric polity, or Temple Grandin's invocation of speaking for animals to perversely consent to their slaughter in factory farms. And so can you speak about how what it would truly mean, and in your experiences, to form relations with non-humans, other than human, more than human worlds in ways that don't simply reproduce human superiority by humans ending up speaking for other than humans in ways that conveniently often end up simply reinforcing humans' interests, but in the guise of more than humans' consent. I think that it's at once a very complex question and a very simple one. I think that one of the things that leads to the disconnection and therefore the speaking for when we try to, to reconnect is, is this quite methodical dismantling of the connection that capitalism has imposed. And I think that one of the ways that we can get to a relationship that is more symbiotic without speaking for is to be close. And it's not a false or a fake closeness, but it's actually when we see farmers working every day in small holdings and in ways that are very connected and respectful to their cattle, for instance, there is a texture of the relationship that I think, and in a simplicity in it of care. I think that for me, this is the main notion, the core of it is to have a care, to be careful of, to be careful for, and to understand that. And I think that this is one of the things that I've learned here is that we, we take care of the forests because they take care of us. And when you have that sense of reciprocity, then you no longer have a sense of pure superiority and what you have is a sense of responsibility. And I think that that really changes the basis of the relationship. And I think when you fight for and with the more than human, so the, the, the title of the book is We Are Nature Defending Itself with Nature in inverted, inverted quotation marks. So this idea that we're not fighting for nature, but with We Are Nature Defending Itself is, was very key to the struggle on the ZAD and, and that slogan has now become a very well-known slogan. 
And that came out of the experience of what some people call species allies or species accomplices. For example, the mud, you know, the, the police were unable to evict in 2012 for many, many reasons that were human, i.e. very good organizing, the fact that we organized a, an action where 40,000 people came to rebuild what the police had destroyed one month after the police had come uh, to destroy it, but also because of the mud, the mud sucked it down the police officers and their machinery and their bulldozers. And we really saw the mud as an ally. And, and I think when you're fighting in those situations and with those kind of allyships, you also have a different relationship to other species. It was not without difficulty and a large amount of conflict because the composition to create this movement was massively diverse in many ways. You would have seven generational dairy farmers sitting next to vegans who are against all forms of animal husbandry, sitting next to anarcho-communists, sitting next to ex-mayoresses, sitting next to anarcho-primitivists who refuse to have any tractors next to them, sitting next to people who are like, we're going to make the common potato field and we're going to have collectively owned tractors, sitting next to hippie runaways, folk who've come off the street of the local town and need a place to live, Real ecological activists with unionists, massive composition. And in that composition, there was a big conflict with kind of urban squatter anti-species types who had an anti-species ideology from reading and from their lifestyle. But then them confronting the farmers who'd been here for seven generations and them in the same struggle against the construction of an airport. And that was, I think, instrumentalized by the state, actually. We don't know what the state did as a counter-insurgency practices, and we won't know for the next 20 years, but in 20 years' time, we will probably read what they did. I think that conflict was definitely created. And what was interesting is what you learn on the ZAD, on the Bockage, is the Bockage itself, this landscape, is a space which shows us that this idea of the wild which is very much an anti-species thing, you know, the, we leave the world to be wild, is a problem, you know, that actually the world is gardened, even the Amazon is gardened. And the bockage here is very much a landscape that was built with humans and other species together. The hedgerows, the whole system is a kind of hydraulic system of agriculture that exists only because of the relationship between the more than humans, the hedgerows, the water, the earth and those who dug and created and designed this landscape. So in itself, this landscape proves that this idea of, of nature is very complicated and dangerous. This idea of wild nature and especially this idea of nature as something separate from us. One thing that this sort of encapsulizes a lot of what we've been talking about is when you say the eye is never constant. And I was thinking, I teach your book along with Juna Perenias's book called Decolonizing Extinction. And she's talking about her experiences of working at a orangutan shelter in Borneo and the porosity between bodies and the fact that environmental changes and changes in nature show us exactly how porous our bodies are and how necessary it is to, to adapt if we are going to survive. Can you speak about the dynamics in building a community of struggle out of such diverse constituencies, I think it's so important to acknowledge the genuine tensions. Often we have a romanticized picture of what activism and struggle involves in ways that often end up papering over the very real, not only tensions, but also hierarchies that exist in such spaces. 
when speaking about deserting state institutions and spaces of violence, I'm wondering how you dealt with the very different pre-existing relationships that the various people coming to the ZAD had with respect to the state. For example, in this country that currently calls itself Canada, we see the very differential treatment and response that the state had to, for example, white supremacists occupying the capital of Ottawa versus Indigenous peoples occupying their lands, their ancestral lands that they've lived on for centuries, treated with much more harsh military violence than the white supremacist convoys in Ottawa. Neve Gordon and Nicola Perigini, who we will hopefully be speaking to on this podcast soon in their book on human shields, point out that ability for certain bodies and lives to act as shields against state violence often end up reproducing the very same hierarchies in state violence itself. For example, that humans are thought to be better shields against state violence than non-humans because non-human lives are devalued. And within human lives, that white lives are prioritized over brown and black lives who often don't serve as a barrier to state violence at all. And so I'm wondering how in thinking about struggle on the ZAD, these hierarchies and tensions were were dealt with in the process of, of organizing the struggle. I think that one thing that we need to acknowledge is how the capitalist system, as I was saying earlier, one of the things that the capitalist system has very, very methodically destroyed and dismantled is our skills and competencies and and in some cases even desire to actually really get together and work together. The sense of collective is something that has been destroyed. And I think that that, that means one of the things that generates is a certain blindness to hierarchical relationships that come back through the window when you try to kick them out of the door. It's a constant effort. And so I think that there were loads of mechanisms that were put in place to try to address some of the issues of power dynamics that are inevitable. There were very simple things, very complicated things, like we did assemblies without voting, for instance, or the decisions were made by consensus. There were attempts to try to mediate conflicts. And I think that one of the things that you also discover when you lead this kind of life, when you really try to regain autonomy, is how much we delegate in our capitalist society is that we have a problem and we delegate to the police, to the local council, to the psychiatric hospital, to the institutions to try to build the capacity to no longer delegate, then you actually meet the great difficulties of not having the skills and not feeling trained, of having also people who deny and refuse to acknowledge the power relationship. And I think that one of the one of the things that is absolutely necessary and that we discovered in this struggle is patience and the willingness to try and build what is called here the composition, which is, if you take the musical understanding, is actually really beautiful, is that you try to build something together without asking the other to become you. And that requires a great deal of, yeah, of tolerance, of patience, of capacity to also be moved in your, in your own convictions, in your 
own ways of seeing things like the capacity to, to compromise. But I think that the, the main thing is to accept that it's, a, it's necessarily a, a long and rocky road. I think that one of the issues is to try to imagine that you can declare that a space is from now on non-hierarchical and that it almost magically becomes so instead. I think that that's, that's naive and I, I think that is, it's really toxic because that often is at the cost of reproducing hierarchies and actually silencing them, silencing the power dynamics even more. So I think that to, to try to work on making them visible, accept the discomfort that comes with it, is is necessary and it's definitely still something that we're working through but it's also quite a threat i mean we live six years without the police and without any government intervention government officials coming on the land between the attempted evictions of 2012 where we managed to kick off kick the police off the land and then the, the police operation they decided to stop the police operation because they thought that would be a death that was the government position, not that the government has any morals about killing people, it's just politically it wasn't very useful for them. They wouldn't get re-elected, they felt, because they were a yeah. socialist government. So between the 2012 evictions for six years, we had no police. So we had to do that all ourselves. And our friend and dearly departed comrade David Graeber once said, they don't mind strikes and direct action and demonstrations, but what governments hate is when you can show that you can live without them and they're kind of ridiculous and useless. And then they get really pissed. And that's what we showed for six years. When the airport project was abandoned, in the same breath, the prime minister comes on TV and says that there will be no airport, but then goes, but all the illegals will have to leave by April. And three months later, there was a eviction, uh, which was really a revenge for two things. One, normally you shouldn't win. A bunch of farmers and activists and locals shouldn't win against a G8 country, France, with a massive police force and one of the world's biggest multinational corporations, Vinci, shouldn't win against them. We won. The other thing it was a revenge against was the fact that we lived these six years without the police. Yeah. And so the revenge was pretty hard. And they came in for three days. They came in with tanks and drones and helicopters and 4,000 police and destroyed 40 different cabins sent 11,000 tear gas grenades, injured 200 people, and then put a ceasefire and said, we needed to sign this, this document to have individual land, uh, land rights for individuals for each plot of land. And we hacked the document and put it in with saying, we're not going to do individuals, it's going to be collective. And that was what we call the gamble of legalization. And that's where we're at now. And the 800 acres of land are now that the movement squatted and now we have rights to that land to use it as agricultural land. And the housing is still, we're still in squats. The housing, we're still in negotiation with the authorities about legalizing the housing. But when that decision was made, so the decision to legalize was done, you'd had three days of blitzkrieg. Suddenly they say ceasefire, you can legalize. Then you had to have an assembly where everyone comes to assembly covered in tear gas, three days of fighting the police and a lot of trauma. You then have to have the same decision to, to legalize or not. And it was very conflictual, incredibly conflictual. And out of the 63 collectives, because at that point there was about 400 people and 70 collectives on the ZAD and six of the 70 collectives decided they didn't want to legalize. And a week later, the police came back with their tank tanks and drones and destroyed those 
six, seven collectives. And so the, the message was very clear. They used to call this place the territory lost to the Republic was how French politicians called it. And so it was very clear. You have to rejoin the Republic. You have to rejoin the rule of law. And if you refuse, then we're going to destroy your homes. That was one of the most beautiful parts of the book is that the hacking of the form. I have a graduate student who's now a professor at Penn State named Ebony Coletto, and her dissertation was called Forms of Submission. And it was about the study of charity work in the early 20th century and the way that the poor had to fill out the forms in order to get charity. So the whole process of hacking into the system, so to speak, without it doing huge damage to yourself. And I was struck by exactly what you mentioned, Jay, about the ways in which even that wonderful insurgent hacking didn't get consensus. There's still people who were, had one foot in another world or another realm and, and hung on to it. But the fact that you all won, ultimately, you, you cohered after this long struggle. And one thing I was going to ask is, I was thinking about the airport protests in Narita that started about the same time. It was also very long lasting. And another much more local event here in, in San Francisco that started exactly at the same time. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I write about it in the book that I sent you. It was the struggle over the International Hotel. And we're trying to evict mostly elderly Filipino maritime workers from a residential hotel in what was to become the financial district in San Francisco. And it was the longest running eviction case in US history, 10 years, but we fought them off. And what happened at the end, of course, was, but they didn't win completely. There was a little opening. And I think this is what's so interesting about revolutionary movements is the one thing that we got them to concede to was that it had it, whatever was built had to include low income housing and no developer would sign on to that. Not because they didn't want to build low income housing. They didn't want to cede any kind of power. It was certainly about that. And so. I used to take my classes up there and say, this is the I-Hotel. It was this huge pit in the ground, right? Because nobody would take. And finally, it happened. The archdiocese stepped in, different political. And it was rebuilt in a really powerful way. And I will tell you this story, which I think as artists you would appreciate. I knew one of the artists who was part of the movement. And he asked for if he could use the bricks. And I have, I'll show it to you. I have a brick from the I-Hotel. Wow. And the people who were there said, we don't want you to build something with the bricks because that's the legacy. But you can take the brick dust and fabricate it into something. And so what he did is he took probably tons of brick dust and he used epoxy to fashion artifacts out of it. He fabricated the fedora that the, the old guys used to wear, but he also, what they always stuck in their hats was feathers. But he fabricated 2005 epoxy feathers out of the brick dust. And they're beautiful and they were red, vibrant color. And I went to the opening and he had the fedora on a tabletop and a carpet of these 2005 feathers. And we opened the doors and the people came in and the people started walking across the feathers to get to the hat. And I turned to him, and his name is Jerome Reyes. I said, Jerome. And he said, that's what's supposed to happen. And wow. then as they stepped on the feathers, they tracked all that dust through the entire museum. They said, that's what movement is. That's what a movement is. It's of the peoples. And so I wanted to ask you to talk about art versus ritual, because I thought that what I just narrated is a perfect, I think in my mind, a perfect example of what you're talking about in terms of taking the eye out of artistic process and making it communal ritual, 
non-permanent and a process of common English. <laughs> I think that, yes, that one of the things around rituals versus the individualistic art practice is that we see it as one of the embodiments of rebuilding the commons. And for us, commons is not this material resort that is managed collectively. It actually is much more a, a process of reconnecting with the collective mutual responsibility that one has with the place that you inhabit in everything that it means. And so there is a, a French, well, actually a, a French-speaking, but Belgian, beautiful theorist called Isabelle Stengers, who reminds us that there can't be commons without commoning, and there can't be commoning without commoners. That it really is a very active process of apprehending a, a territory in a way that is about collective responsibility and reciprocity. And that's one of the things that for, and, and this is one of the things that this new phase in the life of the ZAD is about, is how do we actually rebuild uh, the commons? How do we actually get and build the infrastructures necessary to have this collective responsibility without having an individualistic, lucrative outlook? on the land, on our houses, on each other, on on everything that it is that we built. And it's a genuine struggle because the entire capitalist system is built over the fact that you can't do that. And it's interesting because Federici and Cavensis wrote a, an article saying the more the commons are being talked about and the more they're being destroyed. And I think that there is, it's a very fashionable term. And it's when you actually try to put it in place and build it very patiently as a community, you realize how everything is done so that you fail. And that it's actually in many, many ways, it is that the system is organized so that you can't do it. And, and I think that it, and it requires what I was referring to previously, um, different skills in being together. And I think also a very different sensitivity and sensibility than the one that the one capitalism imposes upon you. So it's a long process. And in that sense, ritual is a very important practice. And the, the, for us, we write about this in the book, but we have a kind of very, maybe, yeah, I was going to say fundamentalist, which, why did that word come up? <laughs> we have a radical critique of art as we know it. Art is an invention. It was invented in the white colonial metropolises of Europe. And it was a clear invention that had at its logic, colonialism and, and classism. It was invented as a class thing to destroy popular culture, to create the divisions between crafts and art, between genius and skill, between the beautiful and the useful. And it was really this idea of, of, of an object, a thing put out there to contemplate was invented by this moment. Most of the world's languages, I think in all the African languages, I think it's 4,000 African languages, there's not a single word for art as we now know it. And so for us, if we are going towards some kind of post-patriarchal, post-colonial, post-racial capitalism, petro 
you know, uh, if, if we're trying to get out of the, this system, then we need another way of thinking about art, something that is actually entangled with life. And that's for us is what ritual is because most art is extractivist, which for us means an artist will go and get, especially in political struggles, will go and, you know, look at the political struggle and and make a video about Black Lives Matters or a performance piece about migrants uh, uh, at the borders. And for us, the role of artists is not to extract value from those things and then put them into the value of the artists themselves and the art world and so on. The question is, how do you do that non-interactivist? For us, the question is, artists should be putting their skills, instead of making a play about the finance system, why not try and invent new ways of doing finance as an artist? And instead of making a, a sculpture about migrants stuck at the border, why not invent new tools to cut the fences on the border? So for us, that's the role of artists in this kind of moment of polycrisis. And ritual for us is... In a sense, theater comes from ritual. Most art comes from ritual, but ritual is a form of theater, a form of art, which doesn't have the ego of the artist and which is based mm. on a reciprocal relationship with the land, with the community. These are ritual is a psychological ob uh, tool that it helps people connect to each other, connect to the community, helps us remember that life, that the seasons are cyclical, takes us out of a kind of capitalist linear progress mindset. It's always reciprocal to the commons because it's always giving back to the community, giving back to the land in some ways. And so for, so we set up on the Zad a, a group called the Cellule d'Action Rituelle to use rituals and to d design rituals as a kind of healing tool also to heal a lot of the conflicts after the evictions of 2018. Mm -hmm. And we try and reinvent ritual as well in terms of, you know, we use lots of humor. It's very kitsch. It's not at all solemn. We believe everyone is born with a hippie gland and a punk gland. Mm -hmm. And the key is to balance the punk and the hippie gland. You come and see our rituals and they're really not hippie at all. They're very, they're quite strange, quite queer and, and quite fun. Speaking of humor, the book is also so full of puns. And I think one of the really generative aspects of the book is that it not only gives us new narratives and challenges existing narratives, but it also challenges grammar and language as the very architecture of thought through which we articulate um, stories in the first place. The book begins by questioning the individualized grammar of you and I, which is then also reflected in the way that the book is written as a collaborative where you can't actually tell who has written what part. And then the book ends with a critique and a discarding of the language of it for describing non-humans more than humans, which is so embedded in pervasively in the way that we speak about the other than human world. This reminds me too of turning to non-European languages, for example, indigenous languages like Anishinaabemo, in which I've learned from Anishinaabemowin speakers, is oriented not around nouns, but verbs, not around being, but becoming. And so at the end of the book, you end up by challenging the very title of the book itself, We Are Nature Defending Itself. And so I'm wondering, Thinking about this from a perspective of an other grammar, an other language, what might be another title for the book? <laughs> Great. Great uh, renaming the book on the podcast. 
Well, it's funny, you know, because there are clearly more than two types of people. But so this is very binary, what I'm going to say, which I tried to avoid. Binary. <laughs> but anyway, no, there seems to be two types of people in the world who are producing cultural products. People who start with a, a title, they start the project. I'm one of those. I can't <laughs> start. And for the record, for people who can't it. see, Isa is pointing to Jay at this point. listeners. <laughs> 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 And those who finish the work and then think, okay, now what shall we give it as a title? Yeah, I start the title, Isa finishes the title. Does that mean that you have to find out? Find find out the um, I I have no idea. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't raise up to the challenge. I think that in a way, one of the things that is difficult about writing and about writing in general and that's totally embodied in in a title, is the fixity of it. And I think that in a way, what I would love is, and this is why I think that we need to reconnect to cultures that are based on oral histories and on the capacity to have narratives that are open-ended and fluid. And because I think that, and this is what, I mean, we were two books together and you know we've written many other pieces and uh, and one of the one of the things that saved me in those moments of crises when you uh, write a book was read the quotation by a poet who said you never finish a poem you abandon it and I feel that there is very much that when you write you abandon your book at some point but I think that's my pirouette would be to say that would be actually I would love to no longer have to write and to no longer have to give titles, but to actually have um, narrative and also because it's not finished. And I'm very much at the heart of the unfinishedness of the Zad at the moment because I'm very involved in a lot of the facilitation term up to my eyeballs and trying to solve conflicts and complexities and so yeah it's the open-endedness is where I'm at at the moment. I think we've always felt that books and cultural products in the these times of polycrisis in these dark times that we're living through that you know stories have a responsibility not to lie but to create new myths to give hope to some in some way. I'm a romantic revolutionary I think I believe that if you ask for this I'm making a for those who aren't looking at the images I'm putting my hands out very big. So if I if I ask if I'm not a romantic revolutionary, I'll ask for twelve inches. If I'm a romantic revolutionary, I'm going to ask for eight feet, and I'll probably get thirty-five inches. So I think the book itself is also an attempt to tell a, a story of hope in these dark times. And the reality of the Zad, of course, is way more messy, as Isa says, and way more conflictual and way harder everyday life. It's not an easy ride, but change is never an easy ride, and we're glad that people are are finding the book useful where they live because you know, of course we disagree totally with manuals for changing and creating utopias and changing worlds we believe everything has to be situated and contextual and this book is definitely not relevant in many places but we hope the spirit is, and some of the values are relevant i think that if you're like me and you might be when you write your book and you put the title on it it becomes frozen in a certain way and I think you, because of that, you're not cognizant of the fact of how open-ended the title is because you ingeniously had the semiotics of this, what we call in the U.S., the scare quotes, nature, the scare quotes. So that automatically inserts a kind of di- dynamic 
as people bring, what do they, why don't they just take away the square quotes? And so you can fill in that unstable signifier in all sorts of beautiful ways, I think. And so be attentive to that. I was going to just relate this, one of my favorite John Berger anecdotes that he, and it mm-hmm. was, we're in the middle of a war in Gaza. And I'm not sure if you know the story, but he's in uh, Ramallah, I believe, on a hillside. And he, he has a tour guide and he's sort of sitting on a chair looking over the landscape. And the tour guide says, well, I have to go do some chores. I'll come back for you in a couple of hours. It's fine. So John's sitting there with nothing but like his, his sketch pad and a bottle of water. And he gets bored after a while. And he just dips his finger into the water and into the dust and just starts sketching. And he fills a few pages and his friend comes back and he says, what have you been doing? He says, well, this. And he shows them these sketches of the landscape and the person beams and he says, our land. And, and he realizes that the person's not pointing to the picture, but to the dust on John's finger. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's the magic of it is he's animated the land in some ways, the pericity has gone into his own flesh. But one thing that really strikes me, one thing that motivates me saying this as my benediction to you all, is how much energy you put into this and how much it took out of you. I mean, when you describe in a very moving way, all the contortion and rechannelings of energy that you both went through precisely to make good on your ethical and moral sensibilities, right? That you were not going to take the expedient way of foreclosing certain kinds of dialogue or truncating your commitment to what we call these days in a rather maybe impoverished way, diversity, but I mean it in a very robust way. We just send you so much love and solidarity. I can't imagine doing a tenth of what you all did and that you're continuing to do it is truly inspirational in a profound way. Again, as you say, language tends to, even when you were talking about commons, exactly, and Aziz and I've had many conversations with our guests about decolonial. I mean, all these things get sucked up and evaporated, but it's precisely when people like you all refuse to let that evaporation take place because you show your commitment, not for just writing more stuff, but by continuing to do things. And so we are so appreciative of you spending time with us and especially appreciative of the work that you're doing and this gift of a book, which is beautiful, beautifully written. And as I said at the beginning of my comments, so deeply powerful because it's so honest. So thank you so much. Thank you so very much. I think that I I feel the need to actually say that I'm very, very grateful for such praise. And at the same time, I want to underline that we come from such a position of privilege and that we certainly took inspiration, the kind of inspiration that keeps you going from notably indigenous struggles where people deploy even more energy and love into their struggles from a a position of like no privilege at all. And I, I find that's it's really important to, for me to acknowledge how much the energy to struggle comes through connecting with each other. And this is why we wrote the book. It's because those, those narratives are, and to keep the stories uh, circulating is so necessary. So thank you very much, because I think that you're part of the movement to keep these stories circulating. So thank you so much. And we're about to go and pick up a load of big coffee machines and tables and move them to our collective 
to the Ambazada, which is in a Zapatista-inspired building to mm. bring struggles together. And because this weekend, the story of the Zad is going to move in another way. We're going to, we're facilitating a workshop with video game makers who are making a video game about the Zad. <laughs> That's so much nicer or... than a lot of the other video games we see where Americans get to shoot Iraqis and torture Afghans without actually having to leave their rooms. So I think so much of the book is about hacking. This is a really beautiful hacking mm. of the mm. very concept of the video game and virtual reality. And, and this is an open platform for you all. Anything you want to do, publicize, share with us, you're part of our community. So please right. consider this an open invitation. Yeah. Thank That's you lovely. so much. And we'd love to one day come over to the US, but we're unfortunately, due to our activities, I don't think we'll ever be allowed into your colonized land. Well, <laughs> sadly, but... but We'll never know. We'll think of all the chaos you would cause. And that's sort of a challenge. This is what people don't, people in power don't get. And I'm at a university where Condoleezza Rice is. This is the architect. <laughs> of, and at one point, I had a confrontation with her at the faculty senate. I was proposing a resolution and she just got flustered. She said, so she gave a big speech because that's what she does. She says, and that's why, David, I cannot support your revolution. I mean, resolution. <laughs> it was such a telling slip of the tongue. And I realized that you're yeah. right. These people are actually afraid of us because we don't tremble in our boots the way they expect us to. We think, you know, this is what happens when you're addicted to power. It's so toxic and corrosive because you're actually parasitic on the people. This is really what it's about. So anyway, I'm getting on my indignant platform at the thought of you being unwelcomed <laughs> in this and, this, on, on and this. then it's merging with your Condoleezza trauma and it's oh all God. just... Yeah. <laughs> okay, I will let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. Really been such a pleasure. Have a great day and welcome. Yeah. Have a good evening. And if you're ever this side of the Atlantic, do come and visit. You'll always be welcome here. Definitely will. Bye-bye. Great. We would, take we care. would love to. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.